and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. And this weekend, we celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles, our Virgin Mother, and all the other disciples in the upper room as individual tongues of fire on everybody's head. Yet, one God, three divine persons, one church, multiple people involved. The mystery of many and one. But it's the mystery of being a self. What does it mean to be myself? To consider how it is I feel about the larger community that I live in, which is an objective reality outside of me. And God both operates in me and in that larger community. And in that interaction between God on a subjective level, that is how I perceive him, how I respond to him, and God in the world around me, both natural and especially the world of the church. This is the Feast of Pentecost. Why is it important to think like that? Because so much of why we have so much modern anxiety is that we can't get the difference between us and the outside world and how it is that we participate in the world that God created. So the Feast of Pentecost, stay tuned. So the Feast of Pentecost, how God takes many different peoples, Jew and Gentile from many different cultures, speaking many different languages, and makes them one in the church. It's the mystery of the many and the one, always a dynamic in human community because the human community is a reflection of God. Remember next week is the Feast of the Trinity, one God, three divine persons, and why it's important that we understand that the image of God is being worked out in the larger human community, but also in me. But you and I are caught between worlds in a way. It's like one of those movies uh, where we don't really belong here, but we're not where we belong yet. That sense of the divided self. Have you ever considered, as you look out into the world, What's being worked out around you in politics and in culture and in religion and in your family is this whole mystery of the self in communion with all the other selves. And at the root of it is this Trinitarian God. So consider this in terms of how you exist in this larger pervasive culture that is very not Christian, but how it still affects how you think about yourself and how you think about other selves. So let's just consider one obvious example. Here it is, the curated self. To curate something is like a gardener going in and clipping off the unwanted branches on a rose bush, pulling weeds. So he presents the garden like he wants it to be presented. But really the garden is just this wild thing and all of these things belong here. Uh, weeds and all these extra branches. This is the way nature is. So in that garden, is it more real the way the gardener presents it, or is it more real the way that nature has it? Because the curated self is like that, isn't it? Because, well, think about it. We're all familiar with Hollywood, and for some of us older people, you recognize that this goes back a long ways, even before us, this curated self for Hollywood stars. And uh, People Magazine thrives on it. All the different uh, news organizations, uh, the trash news, as we would say it, is so popular with people because 
What it talks about is the difference between how a movie star wants to present themselves and how they really are. Really good example from, well, probably a little bit before I was born, but his movies were still big when I was a kid. Do you remember Rock Hudson? Uh, not even his real name. And he was a ladies' man because he was a very handsome guy, but he was always associated with some Hollywood beauty. The reality is he was a gay man, but he wasn't very comfortable with that, obviously. And it was in a time before gay men were free to out themselves and talk about what the experience is of that relationship. Why? Because there's such a backlash against it. And so Rock Hudson, who's the real Rock Hudson? Is he just have to curate himself, get a PR person, public relations, so that people see him as he wants to be presented as this you know, super sex symbol? Um, would people even want to watch his movies if they knew the truth about him? And so what I mean the truth about him is just as many struggles with chastity. Uh, and that just shines through in the Hollywood star system, this struggle with people. How do you live just a human life of relationship that's built around who you really are versus this public persona? And it's that dynamic in American culture, and Rock Hudson's just one example. Obviously, there's hundreds or more of them. But it's really the same thing that runs social media, isn't it? Um, I always like to point out, because everybody points it out, is uh, what makes Kim Kardashian famous or Paris Hilton? What have they ever done? But everybody knows their names. And usually it's about these little snippets of something or other. Uh, they uh, obviously uh, present themselves as glamorous and sophisticated, um, but you can't really understand why. Uh, but you recognize that there's this image that is like this curated image, a gardener trimming them up so they present themselves in a way that Americans want to see people. So how does the self, who the real Kim Kardashian is, who the real Rock Hudson is, how does that interact with you and me, our uh, needs, our perspectives? Uh, and if you think, well, I don't really care about Rock Hudson or Kim Kardashian, good for you. But it obviously a lot of other people do. And so it's something about how we think about the self and the curated self. Do we create them? Does Kim Kardashian become Kim Kardashian publicly because uh, our expectations is what she's responding to? So she's like a slave to what people want in her and she has to put that out for them so that she can achieve whatever her career goals through all this stuff is. Uh, when the real Kim Kardashian is somebody different, when she closes her door, and as my old friend, Sister Grace Braun, a great Benedictine nun used to say, you close your cell door and you call yourself your own. You are just who you are. But this understanding of this curated image and the real self as you and I experience ourselves, as everybody out there experiences themselves, how do you think about that? Well, here's a couple of examples. And this is, I'm not going to go through the philosophers, but ideas have histories, ideas have consequences, and our ideas of the curated self, the Hollywood superstar, the social media star, um, whatever, however you express that yourself, has this long history behind it. And it's a history of how to think about yourself. So, 
in the pre-modern world, and we're thinking about the world of Aristotle, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, uh, before the, quote, Enlightenment and the Renaissance, which really gives us the birth of this modern curated self, there are still people who are self-promoting. But the way they thought about it was a traditional um, ph philosophical Christian way of thinking about what the self is. And here's how people would think about the selves. And this is an objective description of what it means to be a human being that Thomas Aquinas would be comfortable with. And that is, there's at least three fundamental parts of every human being. The intellect, our ability to understand. The will, our ability to choose and act. And then passions, these um, emotions that are not really intellectual, they're not really a choice, but they do affect us, right? And so much of it is uh, the passions are expressed in like at least the, uh, the seven deadly sins of gluttony and lust and avarice and sloth, envy and anger, or wrath as it's called, and pride. These uh, traditional ways that you and I still think about because they're still very much alive because this system of understanding works. Uh, why did I make a bad decision? Well, it was out of lust. Or why did I have that third scotch? It was out of gluttony. Um, so our passions, our appetites, our desires, even though we know better and even though we want to choose better, they undermine us. I've always thought it was a very good way of understanding the human being. But think of the limitations. The limitations are this. It's an objective way of understanding. You're trying to explain everybody. But if it makes sense to you, what if it doesn't make sense to the guy next to you? Because, wow, their desires are just so different, and they would never find public acceptance. Well, this back to the problem of Rock Hudson, right? Or people like Rock Hudson, whose personal lives are very different from their public curated persona when they feel like they can't really be accepted if they act out on who they really feel they're called to be. Well, you get this very fractured self. Well, what happens, of course, is that that Christian uh, world, which is Thomas Aquinas and Augustine based on basically Plato and Aristotle, actually the Neoplatonists, um, just throwing out names. I'm a name dropper. This is big for media celebrities. You don't drop names. So I just dropped a bunch of names. But the modern world really broke up over that understanding of the self. And so it broke into two basic ways of understanding the self, which you still experience in everyday life. The one would be the empirical self. It'd go back to a philosopher like David Hume who believes that you and I are just clouds of atoms and we act in patterns because atoms act in patterns uh, in one version of the empirical self. That is, that the self can be measured. Um, it's uh, that um, you can predict behavior. This is where sociology comes from, right? And you follow into these larger patterns of human behavior. Um, and then the question is, is, do we form those patterns of human behavior by how we market and the images that we hold up or somebody holds up? Or is this something that really comes out of my authentic self? Am I being manipulated by the world? Can I choose not to be manipulated by the world? The empirical self is also has another dimension, and that is psychiatry. The idea that if you suffer from mental illness, there's been this break between 
who you want to be and how you really are to the extent that you're not even responsible for what your actions are, which is still recognized in the law. Well, psychiatry's hope is that maybe it's just a chemical misbalance because you're just basically clouds of atoms. Yes, you and your spouse are just two moist bags of DNA rubbing against each other. No more significance than that. This is the empirical self. Uh, so the idea is you just get the right drug and you'll cure bipolar mental disease or you'll cure um, you know, child molestation. Um, that's really taken a beating in the last century that uh, the empirical self, there's clearly a truth to it. We are uh, atoms. You know, we do have physics and chemistry and biology as part of our nature. The problem is, is reducing ourselves simply to that. It hasn't really proved in how uh, science tries to help humanity. Um, not, not so much. Um, some successes, but a lot of failures too. And all you have to do is uh, be a parish priest and you meet people who've been through these regimes and still struggle with depression. The limits of looking at ourselves as a measurable self, an empirical self. So here's another way of thinking about it, the psychological self. Well, the idea that we are this um, mind you know, trapped in this machine, that would go back to Rene Descartes. Uh, the guy who says, I think, therefore I am. And so he would boil down all of human self to his capacity for thinking. This is what really undergirds at one point the uh, abortion machine, right? It's that, uh, boy, if these children can't think, they can't speak, then they're not fully human. If they're not fully human, they don't have rights. Same argument that this culture used against African Americans and Native Americans. They just weren't as sub smart as the faculty of Harvard and Princeton, so therefore there's something less than human. I'm obviously overstating, but that is what underlies racism. But it comes out of this psychological self that is rooted in the idea that I am just a thinking machine. And so Freud, who's famous for coming up with this uh, uh, contra to the traditional way of intellect, will, and passions, he holds up id, ego, and super ego, ego being the Latin word for I. Uh, and at some point, if you went to high school in the 70s, they made you study this stuff, though I don't think anyone believes in it anymore. But, you know, after kind of the wreckage of the Enlightenment, and why would they talk about a postmodern world, is that the Enlightenment views, empirical and the psychological self, have kind of broken down. It's not that there's not truth in them. It is, however, that there is something big that they miss. And so Catholic theology has tried to respond to this, and um, it really is about trying to reconcile the interior life that I have and then the large world outside me. And so um, two great thinkers or schools of thought. One is personalism, W. Norris Clark, John Paul II, and personalism starts with a human being. Uh, John Paul's uh, personalism starts with experience, the phenomena of being a human being. That's why some people say St. John Paul was a phenomenologist, because whether it's the theology of the body or any of his writings, he always wants to start with human beings and then how they relate, how they think about God, how they think about other people. And it's why he's such a persuasive and important thinker 
because he does capture something about John Arnold uh, in his relationship with God and with the church and with his parents and with his friends and the people he meets on, online. And so here's what John Paul, I would say, uh, his uh, dictum. I say, I think this was really a way, great way of understanding John Paul. He would say, and he said it, and I think is, uh, I think his essay was Community and Subjectivity. Uh, I am what I do, and what I do forms what I am. Isn't that an interesting way of thinking? That you want to know who you are? Look at what you did. So last night, if you did something bad, don't say, that's not really me. But there is something about you that doesn't want it to be you. And so you have to make a different choice to, choice to form who you want to be. So that would be a subjective, uh, of interpersonal, how I think about my relationship with others. But John Paul doesn't limit it to that. But that's ultimately or fundamentally what personalism is. Then the second aspect of Catholic thought is called Thomism or Neo-Thomism. Uh, I think if you go back to uh, St. Thomas, who would go back to Aristotle, uh, defining a human being as an animal of a rational nature, um, that there's a vegetative, an animal, and a spiritual aspect to human nature. I think that'd be a fair way of looking at how Thomas Aquinas and the scholastics would look at being a human being. It's been updated by the Neo-Thomas, our modern Thomas. One of the most famous is Alistair MacIntyre, although Elizabeth Anscombe is in this, W. Uh, Norris Clark, I think, is in this uh, because of what he's trying to do. Um, the great Gen Dr. Jennifer Frey is in this, I think. Uh, the Thomist, the modern Thomist would say, we're an animal of a rational nature, but they would say it with one added dimension, which is very important to personalism. We're rational, dependent animals. You see, adding that word dependent to an understanding of the substance, the objective nature of a human being, is what connects it to John Paul's understanding of personalism and this whole aspect of modern philosophy that goes back to Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am, and bringing this interior life I have into this larger world. So poor Rock Hudson, uh, poor Kim Kardashian, how are they rational dependent animals? How do what they say and what they do in their online life actually form them in ways that are deformed? That's the challenge of Catholic moral theology, uh, the personalism and neo-Thomism uh, to the modern world. So think about how these two things come together, because we're going to talk about the scriptures and we're going to talk about Pentecost. How do I think about myself? How do I think about if I have to look into the abyss inside, how am I going to explain that? Why do I feel so frustrated with the world outside me? Is it like Dr. Evil, I can't dominate the entire world and I'm meant for world domination, like Karl Marx and all of his uh, Nazi, uh, Stalinist followers, or Mao Zedong who wants to uh, dominate the world? That seems to be out there in the press. But that's not how I feel. What am I looking for? How am I completed? How do I think about myself and how do I think about larger humanity? Do I share something with the Chinese communist or some poor Chinese person has no choice about their government? How about these young people being shoved into the front lines in Russia and Ukraine? Do I have something in common with them? And if I have something in common with them that I'm dependent on them and they're dependent on me in some 
maybe close or attenuated way, what about the migrants on the border that are such a flashpoint in American culture? Self, the subjective. Humanity, the community, the objective. Let's talk about Pentecost. Wow, that was a lot. But think about it. Think about how if you were a Jew versus a Christian, how differently would you think about these ideas about yourself and your relationship with God? If you look into the Old Testament, man's relationship with God was man and woman. You'd go and you'd offer sacrifice at the temple, or you'd bring gifts to the temple, or you would support the temple. This public religious cult is how you enter interacted with God. You know what really changed that was the Pharisees uh, following about 200 years before Jesus, the Maccabee revolt against the Greeks. Because the Pharisees, the one that really moved study of the scriptures into the synagogue. And so it became more of a personal understanding of how God and his Torah uh, dwelt among us. And so when Jesus came, this understanding of this public aspect of the religion and cult of the people of Israel, and this um, personal experience of reading the scriptures, but as curated and uh, uh, interpreted for them by the Pharisee movement, um, you have something like the beginnings of a modern self. I'm not a modern self, but the idea of this subjective understanding of who I am in relationship to others and how I relate to God. It's the difference between the Holy Spirit and the temple. Think about this in the story that's told in Pentecost. Do you remember Jesus goes into the upper room in one of the Gospels that we'll have, and it's the end of the Gospel of John, and he breathes on them like God in the book of Genesis, breathing on the first Adam, and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, and whose sins you hold bound or held bound, whose sins you forgive are forgiven. Remember that? <clears throat> because our understanding of sin is the human phenomena that we choose that separates us from God. And it's the Holy Spirit in the church that overcomes that abyss between us and our true self in God, because this is Christianity. And think about it again in the stories of Luke, Acts of the Apostles. And so that's the first reading on uh, Pentecost morning. And remember, they're all in the upper room. Our blessed lady's there. She's experienced the Holy Spirit before. Bunch of unnamed disciples and the 11, because Judas is no longer there. Suddenly this loud driving wind, right? And then what happens? It divides into individual tongues of fire on each person's head. They're not caught all up in one big flame. They have individual experiences of the Holy Spirit. And then when they go out preaching, speaking in Aramaic, all these people in that story say, but we hear them in our own tongue. We hear them in Greek. We hear them in Latin. We hear them in Syrian because the church speaks all of these languages. And so the understanding of the many and the one, which is how we got to the idea of the self and larger humanity, is that the temple of the Holy Spirit is me and you and that Christ dwells in us through that Holy Spirit. We find our communion with the larger world outside of John Arnold because I belong to the church. I partake of the sacraments. 
Sin is the enemy of that. It drives the wedge between me and God and the church, me and the community. But the Holy Spirit is always acting towards reconciliation of my own subjective understanding of my relationship with God and who I am, as fallen as I am, as morally crippled as I am, and still the glory of God. Um, it's how Christ reconciles sinners to themselves. It's the temple and the synagogue, the sacrifice and the individual experience, but it comes out in the church. And so the self, as we understand this objective self that I've been talking about, and the subjective self, whether it's the empirical self or the psychological self, it is in some ways not made possible except for the human experience that I've just described, that um, how I think about myself, my sense of my equality to others, or my sense of freedom, or my sense of uh, acting on and uh, being able to uh, bring about uh, choices in my own life. Um, it is about this sense that I do this in union with God. Because when I feel disconnected from God, well, that is the modern world. There is no one uh, moral understanding that implies us all, at least it comes with sex. We still, fortunately, all believe that the banking system should protect our money and the government should take care of us and protect us from, uh, from bad actors, right? You want the cops to show up and protect you. God bless all those men and women uh, without asking for a bribe because you want community to operate. What has been the wedge in the modern world is sexuality, but it struck at Adam and Eve the same way, the relationship between man and woman. Uh, Christianity is still the most holistic understanding of the struggles of what it means to be a human being. It doesn't mean that modern psychology or psychiatry might not have something to offer us, but they are not holistic understandings of what it means to be a human being. The reason we live in such a fractured world is we can't agree what the world's about, where it's going. And so every individual uh, basically acts for himself. And that when you decide that you're going to be part of the church, you're a part of a kingdom that transcends this world. This is the Christian message. Because there's people in the world, as Jesus says, who will not follow. So let's bring this to a close with what I think is a wonderful expression of everything that I've just been saying. And it's a beautiful poetic expression by Jared Manley Hopkins. And so, friends, the Holy Spirit dwells in me just like in you. We find our union in God, the fullest expression, coming to the Eucharist where God is in us and we are in God, and we find our unity in God. This is what the world is missing, but what we, why we come to Sunday Mass. And there's a poem about it. It's called, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, Dragonflies Draw Flame. And it's about this relationship of what it means to be a person in a larger world in God. And so Jared Manley Hopkins, this is the poem. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over in rim and roundy wells, stones ring like each tucked string tells, each hung bells, bow swung, finds tongued, fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, sells, goes itself, 
Myself it speaks and spells, crying what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, through the features of men's faces. So think about all of that. He sent in, even in the inanimate world, a well, the sound of a well, somehow oh, the rock dropping into the bottom of a well speaks out what a well is, this vast emptiness. Or uh, a kingfisher catching a fish, uh, the light catching and making the, fi- uh, the, the feathers iridescent. Dragonflies do the same thing. Somehow it says something about what their nature is, but for the human being, it's different. When we speak ourselves, a well in a noise, a dragonfly, or a kingfisher in a flash of light, but for human beings, when we speak what's indoors, our inner self, what dwells, our self, sells itself when it speaks and spells, when it says something and it does something. Precursor to John Paul, crying out what I do is me, for that I came. This is a personalism. Uh, from a guy who lived 50 years before John Paul was even born. And then he says about us, what is a just man? A just man's a man that justices. He does justice. What's a grace-filled man? A man that's graceful, who uh, is a vehicle of grace to others, a conduit of grace. And where does that grace come from? Acts in God's, uh, God's eyes, what in God's eye he is. We find our true selves in God. And it's expressed about how we live in the world and what we do. And what's our true self? Hopkins says it. Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places. Hopefully, we're one of them. Lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. Our own selves. To the Father, through the feature of Ben's faces. John Paul. I am what I do, and what I do forms me. And so living the Christian life, my friends, this is what leads us to God. It's also how we become our true selves. If you are who you're not in public media, poor Rock Hudson, then you are what you are not. And that's not a good thing. Be who we are. In justice, in grace, we're Christ. The message of Pentecost. God bless you, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend.